I normally don't like to preach this way, but today I don't have one main text that I'm drawing from. But I think in a way, the nature of the message requires a broader coverage of the Word of God because it's not the kind of message that we draw from one verse. But there is an aggregate testimony of Scripture that says this to us, and we cannot afford to ignore it. The title of my message is called Learning to Say Yes. Learning to Say Yes. That's a curious title because usually seminars and, and teachings, are start, they start today with the titles Learning to Say No, right? Because it's all about balance and protecting our boundaries. But I want to preach a message that's simply called Learning to Say Yes. You know, not too long ago, I had lunch with a colleague of mine. And I guess I must have looked like something the cat dragged in because the whole time we're talking, he's staring at me like I have leprosy. I said, bro, what is wrong with you? Why do you stare at me like I'm sick? He goes, you don't look good at all. You look like you're about to die. I said, really? I feel normal, but I guess I am a little bit tired. I think my face doesn't hide well. I'd be terrible at poker because my face doesn't hide well what my true condition is. And so he started to ask me, what's going on in your life? And I began to tell him some of the things that were on my plate. And he was just shaking his head the whole time. Like, idiot, idiot. And I could tell he was disappointed with the way I'd arranged my life. When I was finished, he kind of tore into me with a strong rebuke that I'd bitten off more than I could chew and that I needed to restore balance in my life. And, you know, I I know that he meant well because he was really trying to show concern for me, and I felt that and I received it. And I have no criticism for what he was trying to do in my life. But I have to tell you that as he was talking to me, there was a strong feeling of inner conflict boiling up in me at the same time. Because for a long time now, something has been creeping into the edges of my mind that has been bothering me for a while about the way modern Western evangelical Christianity is turning. See, I was pretty conflicted because as busy as I was, for every one thing I say yes to in my ministry life, I say no to four other things. And I'm not exaggerating when I tell you, if you could see my inbox and the number of invitations and requests for my time and energy that come in, I say that not to boast because I'm famous or great, but because there aren't that many people around who are able or willing to do some of the stuff that pastors can do. And I agonize over each incoming request. I picture myself being there and what God might do. And I say, Lord, am I supposed to be there? And I get on my knees and I ask the Lord for guidance. And because I have certain restraints placed on me by my family and the board of this church, I know that I have some narrow limits within which I must operate. God's given me a horse and I don't want to beat it to an early death. And so I'm aware of that. And for every four things, every one thing I say yes to, I am saying no to four things. And each time I say no, I worry. I lose a little sleep over that group. And I told this to my colleague. And I said, you know, I'm so accustomed to saying no that even though it seems like I say yes a lot, there's a lot of groups and a lot of people out there who go without. He shook his head even harder. He said, you might be struggling, brother, with some kind of Messiah complex. You know, you're not the only pastor in the world. And I said, yes, I understand that. And I, I'm not immune to the Messiah complex. Lord knows, i got to make sure I don't think I'm the savior of the world. But I think my inner conflict comes from something deeper than just that. Because I know that for a lot of the things I say no to, there is no one else in ministry in my, among my colleagues who is saying yes to those places. 
And it keeps me up at night wondering, in a world where no is so often heard, are we really building the kingdom of God in the way that God intended for it to be built? The first big point of this message is that I want to shatter what I think I would like to call the idol of balance. The idol of balance. Back in December of last year, I preached a message called Priority One, flowing out of the text of Matthew 6.33, Seek First the Kingdom of God. And in that, pre- in that, that uh, sermon, I showed you a slide, and it was a funny slide of a seesaw with a bunch of girls on one end and an elephant on the other, and the girls were on the bottom and the elephant was on top, which is a strange picture because the elephant should clearly outweigh the little girls. If I had time this week, I would have put together a slideshow. I did not. But that slide reminds me of something that is wrong with the way we sometimes try to arrange our affairs. We act as if somehow... Balance is possible on a seesaw where I sit on one side and the God of heaven sits on the other. You know, as a result of that conversation I had with my colleague, I've been doing a lot of thinking about what this word balance means. It can mean a lot of things, but I think when we use it, each one of us has a certain mental conception we hold as to what balance really ought to mean. And we not only hold it for ourselves, but we insist on it on other people's lives. At its best, I think balance reduces to a good stewardship of our limited resources. I think at its best, at its healthiest, what balance means is that we know our limitations and capacities and we don't overwork ourselves to the point that we are useless the day after, but that we are allowed to stretch just to the point of where we can so that we can walk another day. Do you get that? I think at its healthiest, that is a good definition of balance. But I sometimes suspect that when I use that word and when many of you use that word, We have an entirely different concept in our minds. That we're not talking about being stretched just enough so we can run another day. But that is just a spiritualized way we have of saying the same old thing, me first. I sometimes think what we call balance in America is really a spiritualized way of promoting self-centeredness. Now, I know right now, some of you, you're, you're on edge already because that is so against the politically correct message, even in American churches today. Balance is a sacred institution. It is one of those things that's supposed to be beyond debate, beyond argument. When you say to people in any room, I'm just trying to get a little more balance in my life. Everyone is meant to go, oh, yeah. Praise God, yeah, you should. I am trying to. It's one of those words that we presume everyone agrees and it's a valuable thing. But I wonder if more times than not, when we speak of balance, what we're really saying is, I need to guard this priority I place around myself so that in everything, I'm left in the position of negotiating even with God. See, sometimes the mental picture I get is that We think of our lives as this precious, empty basket, nice and clean, a blank slate. And we're meant to guard very carefully what gets put into that basket and by whom. 
That's what any time management guru in America today, in business or in ministry, will tell you, is that you have this basket, guard it well. I read this, uh, this book recently called Boundaries. The subtitle is, when to say yes, when to say no, to take control of your own life. And at first I was like, yeah. But the more I thought about that subtitle, it bothered me because that doesn't seem to me compatible with my identity as a slave of God. That somehow the goal of my life should be to take control of my own life. You know, we speak of this empty basket, and some of us are like pit bulls. We guard it ferociously. Hey, hey, hold on a second. Don't you go putting your stuff in my basket. I have to carry that basket. You don't. And so I'll tell you how much is allowed to go in there and by whom. Now listen, don't get me the wrong way. I'm not suggesting, this is not some subconscious manipulation so that you have to say yes to everything I ask of you. That's not my aim at all. I think it's important to be a good steward of the finite humanity God's given you. Look, everyone's got to know their limits. But I'm talking more about an attitude. An attitude that says, it's my job to guard what gets put in the basket. So that even with God, we frame ourselves as equals and we're negotiating with Him. And God is meant to be the be playing this role. God, you show me all the things you like to put in here. I'll mull it over and I'll let you know which things can get in and which things cannot. That's fine if your neighbor or your friend or even your pastor is laying something at your feet. But isn't there something wrong when the God of the universe who died to redeem us has to negotiate with you and I about what he's allowed to put into the basket of our lives? I think I've been so conditioned by the modern notions of balance, that I can't even preach this without feeling like I'm saying something wrong. I'm not comfortable saying this stuff to you because i got to live it out myself. But I think somewhere in here is a truth that God wants our church to awaken to. You know, I remember reading about the circuit riders of early American Methodism. I don't know if you heard about these guys. <clears throat> the Methodists were kind of a small denomination. They made their way to the, this new world, and they realized that there was something about the way they worshipped Christ that was necessary to spread all over this land. And so they appointed these men called circuit riders. They gave them a horse, a couple saddlebags, and a huge territory that would take weeks, sometimes five to six weeks, to get from one end to the other. And their job was to go on a circuit, planting and preaching and ministering to a, a number of churches along the way. They never settled. They never had a home. They just moved from one church to the other. And some of these guys would log hundreds of thousands of miles on horseback over the course of a short career. A great many of them died very early from just sheer exhaustion. But because of their efforts, the gospel made deep penetration among Native Americans, and it spread Methodism to the point where it became the dominant Protestant denomination in this new country. <clears throat> I remember several years ago, it must have been six years ago or so, we sat in a small, dim hotel room in Lanzhou, China, with a house church pastor. Somehow, by the grace of God, we made a connection with this man, and we were interviewing him because we longed to find out what was really happening in that country. What's the real story with this house church movement? And the story that unfolded was Unbelievable. He didn't focus so much just on the persecution, which was always a specter hanging over their shoulders. 
But he was describing what his life was like. And every time he opened his mouth, I felt less and less like a pastor. And this brother was telling me, I cover a large area so that I'm essentially pastoring 300,000 people. (laughs) 300,000 people. He basically travels by train from one region of his field to the other, often leading up to eight worship services back to back to back in one day because the people are so hungry to worship, but they cannot freely congregate in large numbers. So he moves from village to village, home to home, leading an hour to two-hour worship, and then he gets on the train, and he can't afford much, so he rides in the car where there's no seats. It's just standing room, and he goes to the next place, gets off, and does it all over again seven days a week without end. He was on a rare break when we caught him in Lanzhou, and he was sharing this story with us. And for all his troubles, he earns $150 U.S. per year, which happened to be the exact amount of money I had in my pocket for our team's food that day. We, of course, handed that money over to him. We gave him his annual salary in one hand. And he was overwhelmed because of what this could do for the ministry. Now listen, the circuit riders of early American history, the house church pastors of today, they may not be the best candidates for poster child for time and life management and balance. You're not going to hear them referenced in a time management seminar as to this is how you should try to live. But the way they arrange their lives is not so much a function of ambition or strategy or or choice, but it is really the only way in that time and in that context that they could fully obey the call of God on their lives. They were ministering in a unique situation where God's kingdom was rolling forward and required people who would be burnt up as offerings on his altar. And there are simply times in the world's history where nothing less will do to advance God's kingdom. This controlled, staid, balanced, suburban, Franklin Covey planner lifestyle is not the only way to advance the kingdom of God. Every now and then, and in every generation, I think, God requires of some people to just have nothing left, to leave it all on the field, to learn to say yes, almost to the point of recklessness, as a testimony to the lordship and the worthiness of a God who will not share the seesaw in balance with you and me. If I could segue rather unsmoothly to a second main point, it is simply this. If we're going to learn to say yes, the first person we've got to learn to say yes to is God. The biggest problem I have with that skewed view of balance is precisely that it makes us feel like we're equals with God. Like we're allowed to negotiate with him and he's supposed to run things by us. And, you know, I'm not trying to scold you or anything. I'm saying this because I did so much soul searching and I realized that is essentially how I arranged my life. If that's how we understand things to work, how are we then to make sense of a word like Lord? You know, we say, oh, yeah, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Don't, you, don't those three words just kind of belong together? Lord and Savior, like Siegfried and Roy, you know? 
Whoever talks about just Siegfried, Siegfried and Roy, Donnie and Marie. Do you know what I'm talking about? We say it like they just, it's kind of like his first name and his name, Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. I think undoubtedly we can all say with clarity, Jesus Christ, well maybe not all, but most, can say with clarity, Jesus Christ is my Savior. That costs us very little to say. But it's another matter altogether to say with a straight face and with integrity intact that I have actually accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord. That's a word that's fallen out of common usage. There used to be people that we call Lord in this world because they actually held power of life and death over us. You know, you go to a king, you call him my Lord because he can kill you with a decision. He can have you thrown in jail because he doesn't like the way your breath smells. That's power. Somewhere along the way, we've lost the notion that that's who God is to us, is he is somebody far greater in importance and value and strength and power than we are. We must not call God Lord frivolously. There was a time when Jesus heard the clamoring of the crowds, even the crowds closest to him, the people he was discipling. And at one point he got frustrated. In Luke 6, he said to them, Luke 6, 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? See, what Jesus was saying is, if you want to call me that, There is a price tag associated to that. And there is a wonderful world you will discover on the other side of that. But you do not call me Lord like it's my name. It is an affirmation of a reality. When we call Jesus Lord, it must describe at some level the reality of my daily life. There's a wonderful story in Acts 9 that often gets overlooked. You know, Acts 9, if you're a Bible student... You know that Acts 9, right away, knee-jerk reaction, conversion of Paul. Conversion of Paul, right? That's such a big story in Acts 9. Saul is walking venomous on the way to Damascus to punish the Christians. And then Jesus sees him, shiny light. Why do you persecute me? I'm sorry, Lord. He goes blind and on and on. And so you know the story. Saul is gloriously converted from the enemy of the church to one of Christ's greatest servants. What gets overlooked in that chapter is the story of a guy named Ananias who's in Damascus. Listen to this. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. By the way, that's a great little response whenever God calls you. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man named Tarsus, from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. I really love that story because it gives me a clearer picture of the way things ought to work between us and God. 
Do you realize what a distasteful assignment Ananias had been given? Did you catch that where he was living? He was a Christian living in Damascus, which just happened to be the city where Paul was going to kill Christians. It's very likely had Jesus not intervened on that road that Ananias would have ended up one of Saul's great victims. And so when news reaches Damascus that Saul is struck blind, the cheers must have gone up. Yes! High five! God answers prayer. That jerk Saul was coming here and God blinded him. That should have been source for jubilation. But then Ananias, in his quiet time, gets a vision from God. And God says, Ananias, listen, here's what I want you to do. Go to this guy's house named Simon on Straight Street. And I want you to touch this guy, Saul, and heal his blindness. Let him see again. And what I love is that God allows Ananias to respond. He allows him to to voice a concern. And what does Ananias say? "Uh, Lord, you know who this guy is, right? He's the enemy of your saints. And I'm worried that if I heal his blindness as you've commanded, he's going to cause a lot of trouble for your people. And God says back to him, all right, I've heard what you have to say, but still shut up and go. You can trust me, Ananias. I know what I'm doing. And what I love about that is that Ananias' concern was not about balance in his own life. I don't hear Ananias saying, "Uh, Darn, Lord, that straight street is a really long way from my house. And I've got a bunion on my toe. Or he doesn't say, Lord, I had other plans for this afternoon. I really had my heart set on a round of golf. Or it's game seven of the playoffs and my team is going to win. He doesn't protest at the level of how this will infringe upon his agenda, and his balance. Instead, the concern he raises is about the implications to the kingdom of God. And God reassures him, you can follow me on this. It's going to be okay. And to his credit, Ananias says yes. And because Ananias says yes, wheels are set in motion that would lead to one of the most glorious lives ever lived for the honor and sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, God leaves open to us a lot of lifestyle options, doesn't he? But no matter what lifestyle option you have chosen, and please, all of you, look up at me for one second. This is not the time to sleep. Look at me for one second. I don't care what lifestyle or career path you have chosen. At some point, not because I say so, but because the word of God says so, at some point, your life and my life must resemble the New Testament lifestyle of the follower of Jesus Christ as described in Scripture. There is no escaping this. You cannot create a Christianity of your own convenience. Nor can I. At some point, your life and my life must look like the Christianity described in the pages of Scripture. In verses like Luke 9, 23 and 24, And he said to all of them, If any would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would love his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That's Luke 9. Listen to what Luke further writes. Luke 17, Jesus said this, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Oh, come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to his servant, Prepare supper for me. 
and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, should say, we are but unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Listen, I'm not going to build a mega church preaching like this. I'm sorry. This is not the way you get popular in America. But I have no way of escaping this conviction that is set heavy upon my heart. I don't want to die early. I don't want to be a workaholic and neglect my family. But I must live a life that resembles and makes sense of these kinds of passages. Or my life as a Christian is not the Christianity described in the precious pages of God's word. It is something we have invented that we could stomach and live with. I don't know if we can afford the time, but I feel like we need to pause at this moment in the sermon. Because I think God may want to say something to you apart from my own mouth. And I want to give you a couple minutes in quiet to listen for the voice of God. Because I believe that there may be something or someone that God has been calling you to say yes to, and you have somehow fallen into the habit of saying no. And you've done it in the name of balance, when really God calls you to servitude and discipleship. So I want to give you a minute. And why don't we just close our eyes and quiet and hear the voice of God, because I believe he's beckoning you. Speak the word yes before his throne. Amen. Amen. Doing a lot of yelling this morning. It's not because I'm frustrated or angry, but because I love this church. And I'm going to turn 40 soon, and I guess it's the time of a person's life when they think about what they've done with their lives. And I've been taking stock of the kind of church Pastor Frank and I would like to shepherd. And I'm convinced that we're not, not really going to ever be an 80,000-member church or anything like that. But if at the end of our lives one thing could be said of us, may it be said of Harvest that this church was filled with people who insisted that God would define what it means to be a Christian. That we were not the kind of people who were in the habit of saying no to God, but yes 
me wrap up with one other admonition to you. In the process of saying yes to God, quite often you will find God leading you to say yes to other people. I think it's important you hear these words. Say yes. Learn to say yes to one another. Now, those of you who have a crush on someone in here, you're like, yeah, I was waiting for that sermon. Do you hear that, girl? You better say yes. That's not the point at all. Relax. I'm talking about you. There's someone in your life who needs more than good wishes from you, who needs more than a Dayspring e-card from you. They need something with teeth in it. I remember an incident. Those of you who are veteran harvest attenders, you may remember, I think I, I used this illustration like 10 years ago. When I was in high school, I borrowed a friend's car because I needed to get home. It was real late. I was way past curfew. No one would drive me home because they were having too much fun. So I said, dude, let me borrow your car. I got to get home before my parents kill me. Well, this dude lends me his car and he didn't tell me it's out of gas. So somewhere driving between Glenview and Libertyville, I got stuck on I-294 at around 1 in the morning with no gas in the car. I'm a high school kid. I'm like 16. I'm terrified. I don't know what I'm doing. So I'm huddled in the car going, oh, Lord, this is the kind of scene in the movies where someone comes and knocks on your windows. May I kill you, please? And I'm like frightened. This guy was a golfer, so he had some golf clubs in the back. So I'm, I took out, I think, the, the, the driver, and I'm holding it like this. I'll kill anyone who tries to... Then I thought, you know, this is ridiculous. Almost an hour had passed. It was around 2. I'm thinking, no one's stopping. I better get out there and hitchhike a ride. Well, that was around the time that the movie The Hitcher was out, so I was kind of scared. And at first, I walked out on the shoulder holding a golf club, (laughs) which doesn't make me look exactly like a safe prospect either. Finally, I, I put the golf club away. I'm just flagging people down, and I'll tell you, I've stood out there for close to an hour just and you'd be surprised on 294 how many cars are driving in the middle of the night. People just whizzing by me. I'm like, hey, jerk. Hey. They would not stop for me. And I was thinking in my imagination, I bet a lot of the people in those cars are like me. When I drive past the hitchhiker, ooh, poor guy, I hope he finds a ride. Man, I'd stop because I got someplace to go. Oh, Lord. Or, ooh, I was going too fast. I can't stop now. I bet you a lot of well-wishers sped right past me at 75 or 80 miles an hour. And I appreciate that they hoped I would get a ride, but none of them stopped. Finally, you know who's the first guy to stop? Believe it or not, a guy driving an Amoco oil tanker. I'm thinking to myself, God, when you answer prayers, you really answer prayers. Here's a whole truck of gas. And this guy gets out and he goes, Hey, partner, you have a gas can. I'll just give you some gas for free. You don't have one because I don't have a gas can. And talk about a conundrum. This guy has tons of gas and no way to get it to me. Finally, we just stood there staring at each other like, ain't there something right here? You know, he's just looking at me like, is there some way I could just put it in my hand and stick it? I, we couldn't come up with a solution. Finally, he goes, good luck. I, I'm on a deadline. I got a route. I have to go. So there goes this, get, this truck full of gas into the horizon. I'm like, Lord, it's 3.30 in the morning. What am I going to do? Finally, this guy in an SUV stops. Those are the days when SUVs were very rare. And, you know, usually you associated, like, large trucks with people who kill you. So this guy with tinted windows and everything pulls over, rolls on the window, and I run up to him. He looks friendly enough. He goes, get in, bro. I'll give you a ride. 
I just threw up a prayer, said, it's the middle of the night, I'm half asleep, I'm going. And I got in the guy's car, and he took me back to my friend's house, where I ended up spending the night. And on the road there, I asked him, why did you stop? And he said, when I was a poor college student, I had no money, so I couldn't afford a car or even a bus pass. I had to hitch a ride every day to and from classes. And I was overwhelmed by the kindness of strangers every single day. Someone picked me up, and I vowed that when I make it in life, I will never pass a hitchhiker by. And he was true to his word. He picked me up. This dude owned his own construction company. He said, my last car was a Porsche 911, but I just got this thing. I'm like, oh, I met you a little late. <clears throat> but you know what? This guy stopped, and you know what made the difference? He understood what it was to be on the other side of that equation. He knew what it felt like to need a ride and not just good wishes. And he made a commitment in his heart that when he confronts need, he will not just hope for the best, but he will stop the car. That made a huge difference in my life. Now listen, the take-home message is not to you young ladies, pick up hitchers. I don't want to be blamed for that headline, okay? You have to be wise. But the point is, look, people cannot eat your kindness unless it gets translated into food. Do you remember what it says in James chapter 2? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Did you hear that? I think that's where the Christianity is for so many of us, isn't it? We have compassion, but we regard compassion as a sentiment. Oh, I feel so bad for them. But if it ends there, it is just this much better than a worthless emotion. Compassion that makes our hearts bleed is not what God is calling compassion in the Word of God. For Him, compassion, properly defined, is when it causes not just our hearts, but our flesh to bleed. It is the kind of love that follows through to the word yes. You know, there are people we, we've often called in this church, those gum-on-your-shoe people. They're so needing a friendship that you're so afraid if you're nice to them once, they will be stuck to your life like gum-on-your-shoe, and you're like, please, find another friend. And so you're so afraid to love them because you sense, even in the periphery of their life, how much they need you. And it scares you. And as a result of that fear, every one of us, but maybe a few, will say no to that person. So that the one or two who will say yes are dying because we have not shared the load of ministry. I realize there's no way I can just stop saying yes altogether because I think, at least in part of Chicagoland, something's going to give. I talk to a lot of my colleagues and I'm finding more and more to my disappointment. My brothers in arms are really habitually used to saying no. I'm astounded at how when they get an invitation, the way they assess it a lot of times is, do I want to go to this? Am I tired? What am I going to get out of it? Do I, is it a friendly group? And they ask me all these questions. I'm like, dude, that can't be the way you analyze things. It can't be the first layer of questions you apply to the invitations of God. 
Somebody in God's kingdom has to learn to say yes without counting all the costs to me personally. And that is my charge to you, is to become those people who don't just walk by like, oh man, that's really too bad. Because if that's you laying on the ground, that is not what you want to hear, I assure you. See, the thing is, the beauty of the word yes is that when you're down and out, and you're not in a position to make demands, when you are at the mercy of the kindness of a fellow human being. Have you ever been there, by the way? Some of you are so capable. I don't know if you've ever genuinely experienced what it's like to have your future and your fate in the hands of others. If you've ever been there, then one thing you'll discover is that your heart craves to hear the word yes. I remember one time we needed to go somewhere and I had been so stupid, I had, I had neglected to find a babysitter and my wife was looking so forward to this outing and I was busy at work and I was like, oh Lord, I'm supposed to find a babysitter. And I was scrambling at the last minute, I think I called half of you ladies in this church. And I remember just kind of this weird, awkward feeling like, I'm so afraid they're going to say no because it is awfully short notice, but today I desperately need to hear the word Yes. And several women said yes, and we found that babysitter. And it's such a trivial instance. But I'm telling you, when you're in that place, the word yes does not only transact goods and services, it builds a bridge between people. It restores hope and joy and a sense of community. It builds relationships. When you say yes to your brother in need, you're not just agreeing to hand over something. You're saying something about what exists between you. You're saying, listen, you are never really going to be alone in, in this, are you? Because when you're backed up against it, you'll have us. You don't have to worry about what's going to happen. Because when push comes to shove in this family, you will have us. That is what gets communicated each time we learn to say yes at great cost to ourselves for the sake of one another. I want to pause for another minute because I suspect that maybe there is someone in your life that you really know you need to be saying yes to. God's been putting opportunities in front of you and you're so caught up in the things that you need to guard in your own life. And Maybe it's just your own children right now. Maybe You've been so busy at work, your kids now in your mind's eye, they're just a nuisance that have to be managed. Gosh, I wish I could just put the pause button on these kids for about three months so I can get ahead in this thing. Maybe it's a neighbor that you just know. They've been looking worse and worse. Something's not right. But you don't want to get into it with them because you've got your own stuff to carry. I don't know what God will tell you, but I suspect that in every last one of our lives, there's someone who is being neglected because we haven't said yes to them. And I can't tell you who that is because I'm not the authority over your life. But I'm going to invite you not to daydream, not to catch a nap, but for the next minute, listen for the voice of God and let him speak to you who it is that's been yearning to hear the word yes from you. Can we bow for a second together in listening prayer?
Amen, Lord. Amen. Did you see a face materialize in your heart? I hope you did. Let me just finish here. I think a lot of times we're like logs who want to be close enough to the fire to stay warm but not get close enough to be burned up. I think the the purpose of this message is simple. It is just to remind you and me, hey, we're logs. Logs aren't supposed to be kept warm by the fire. They are meant to be consumed in the fire. That is who you and I are. The aim of Christian life is not to manage it. It is not to make Christianity just another one of the tools available to us to produce a satisfying and enriching life. Christianity is life. And for us, it is meant to be all about honoring and savoring and serving the God who paid with his own life to love us. That is what Christianity is. And if you will respond to him, if you will learn to say yes to him and to his people, I think the promise of Scripture is that God will take you to glorious places you would never think to walk on your own. He will take you to places you in your right mind would never have wandered left to yourself. That is the power of learning to say yes. I can testify that's true in my life. God has shown me things and put me in touch with people that I treasure so much and I don't think that I would ever have gone to these places if it was about taking care of myself. But following the Lord, even recklessly, brings our life to an amazing new place. That's where I hope that all of us will learn to live our lives. Now, the final word be, let's watch each other well. Let's help each other not to ride that horse to an early death. But let's produce a culture among us that encourages a selflessness that reflects the Christianity that Jesus taught. Amen. Why don't we bow together? I'm going to invite the praise team to just return to their places up here. As they're coming up, let's bow together in prayer. We pray simply today that God, through his Holy Spirit and the power of his scriptures, would shatter the idolatry of balance in our lives. You will never balance a seesaw where the God of the universe sits on the other end. He is Lord, and you and I are his servants. Sooner or later, our lives must reflect that. So help us, God. That is who we are, you and me. And let's pray that God would make it so. Can we just pray that? Let's pray.